Well, good morning. It is my privilege to be with you this morning. I have known of and about and known people from uh, Burge Terrace for years. And um, this is my first time here. Um, This will be good news to some of you and maybe not to others. I am an IU fan. Um, So depending on where that leaves you, you can leave now or... uh, Anyway, I know that's always dangerous. Um, I'm not from Indiana, uh, but it's a place that I always wanted to visit because in 1986, knowing nothing about uh, NCAA basketball, there was a game on TV and this team from Indiana was playing Syracuse and I picked the underdog that night and Keith Smart hit a jump shot to win the game. And so I have been an IU basketball fan since 1986. So Those of you who've lived here and were born into that culture can call me bandwagon, but at least it's been since 1986. So anyway, it is a joy to be here. I bring you greetings from uh, our president, Steve Pettit, as well as from everybody at Bob Jones University. Uh, We literally last week finished the opening week of our 96th year, and uh, we are rejoicing at what God is doing on our campus. I have been back at the university. This is my fifth year. And I spent the last couple of weeks doing leadership training with my staff and then with all of our student leaders, and that group grew throughout the week. And by the end of the week, we were doing leadership training with 600 of our students that will be involved in designated leadership roles this year. And I can say, based upon the time spent with them and hearing what God is doing in their lives, that I am more excited about the beginning of this year than I have been about any year that I've been there, at least Um, The spirit on campus this past week has just been wonderful, and and we're excited about what God is doing. Out in the foyer, I've got a little table set up. There's a video playing. If you want to go see kind of what is happening at the university, that'll catch you up faster than me saying a bunch about it. Um, But also there, there are some t-shirts, and uh, particularly if you are in 10th through 12th grade, if you fill out for me neatly and accurately a card. Uh, We're going to do a drawing. I don't want to take those five t-shirts home with me. We'll give those away. And so if you'll do that for me, um, I'd be happy to give you a a Bob Jones University t-shirt. All that said, that's as much time as I want to take with that. We've gathered together to worship the Lord. So take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading in verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, 
and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. We are living in cataclysmic cultural change. We're experiencing the impacts of a a seismic cultural shift. Our Western world is making the tangible move from a culture based in the historic Judeo-Christian ethic to one that is based in the secular, humanistic, ethical norm. And the manifestations of that pivot are that we have seen our culture shift from morality to pragmatism, from absolutes to relativism. Morality matters to the ends justifies the means. We are watching the quaking of a culture that is wrestling with the humanizing of God and the deifying of man. We're watching a world that is desperately trying to reconcile the unity of humankind while simultaneously stratifying humankind in every possible way. For example, anybody can self-identify as a woman, thus stripping the female gender of the rightful recognitions that have been so hard fought for over the last century plus, or fighting for a woman's reproductive rights while making declarations that we now have a birthing person instead of a woman. And the simultaneous actions are actually tearing the culture apart. We're watching a culture that has jumped headfirst off the jagged cliff of social destruction without a moral, ethical parachute. And no matter what mid-air contortions it may go through, there is nothing that is going to slow the rapid descent or soften the inevitable crash. It is this world that John desperately pleads with believers not to love when he writes, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away. That description there actually is of a world that is in a downward spiral of constant decay. The world is passing away means it is getting worse and worse and worse. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. In this cultural shift, we're seeing some really interesting things bubble to the surface. For example, we're seeing the deifying of transparency. I can justify saying anything as long as I say, I'm just being honest. I can rationalize doing anything as long as I can say, I'm just being real. We're seeing the moralizing of affirmation. That I can demand and and expect acceptance as long as I have been transparent. No matter what I tell you, your ethical responsibility is to affirm me because I've just been transparent. And I can reject any correction because I hold the moral high ground of transparency. We're seeing the rationalizing then of compartmentalization. It's a good thing for the sake of being relatable to pretend to be something I'm not. So, for example, I can have someone that has a spiritual life. 
And that spiritual life will be completely honest and completely transparent about its pride or its problems and in a group setting. I'll discuss all of those things and I'll draw some form of, of community to that life all the while, while this life, my real life, is actually engrossed in things like immorality or pornography. And I can compartmentalize those two and feel good about myself because that life over there, my spiritual life, is being honest. So let me make a shocking statement for you. God is not interested in your spiritual life. God is interested in your real life and He wants it to be spiritual. And those are two different things. God is interested in your real life and He wants it to be spiritual. We're living in incredible days, I believe. I regret having to say it. I was the head of the COVID task force for Bob Jones University. So anytime I feel somebody leading up to saying that word COVID, I stop them. Say, don't, don't, please don't, don't say that. So I regret saying it this morning. But we are living in a post-COVID culture, aren't we? And much of what I've described in this cataclysmic cultural shift has actually been put on steroids because of COVID. What happened during COVID? A couple of things happened. One, we faced a hyper-isolation. Most of us in the Western world never knew that kind of isolation before. We had to stay home. I, I went with a group of students when COVID was first getting started, and we had to suspend classes on campus. And so we went out one night to play pickleball. Me and 14 students are playing pickleball. It was nice to see them move my direction, playing what the old guy likes to play. But anyway... Um, we, were, we were out there playing pickleball. It was about five till nine. A police car pulled up to the pickleball courts and over a loudspeaker announced, these courts are closing in five minutes. And I'm serious. If you're not off the courts in five minutes, I will be issuing citations. I thought, my goodness, I'm going to go to jail for playing pickleball. <laughs> Hyper-isolation. A second thing that happened during that time, however, was that we were faced with hyper-information, weren't we? We all sat around hearing everybody's opinion. People that have never known anything about medicine all of a sudden were medical experts. And we heard all of this information all of the time. And then it ended and we all came back together and you know what we were left with? Hyperpolarization. Why? Because everybody had a very well-informed opinion and they were dying to share it. And that's the world we find ourselves in. Our Western culture is as polarized as it has ever been. And that's why the media seems the way that it is. And that's why politics are as stratified as they are. The question I have for you this morning is this. Do you think God is interested in that? You think God is sitting in heaven wrestling and rubbing His hands and furrowing His brow saying, I wasn't expecting this one. I think He's very interested in that. I don't think it in any way took Him by surprise. In fact, in the passage we're going to look at this morning, I think we'll see His good intents in that. So I ask you a second question. That is this. 
Do you think our adversary is interested in that? You think Satan has any interest in the things that we've described this morning? Oh, I think he does. So then a third question for us. How interested are you in that? And that's really where I want to perk our attention this morning. The passage that we're looking at, I want you to see, is a holistic unit. It is what we would refer to as a form of chiasm. And that means that really there's parallel truths that move from the outside to the inside. And when you get to the center of it, you find kind of the general purpose of the, of the whole thought. And so notice in the passage that we read, that the passage kind of begins and ends with God. And it's parallel thoughts moving from outside to inside. And we find a central truth in verse 9, where it talks about steadfastly resisting in the faith and understanding something. That the same suffering or afflictions or difficulties are actually being experienced. And there's, there's an incredible kernel of truth in that word experience. It actually is the idea of perfecting or accomplishing something in your brethren that are in the world. There is something that is being brought to perfection in the world. And somebody is describing that and actually can describe it in a way that he understands what it is and he also understands the timetable a little while. So as you look at the structure of the passage, you almost see a competition. There are two acting agents. Notice verse 8, your adversary the devil. And then notice verse 10, the God of all grace. And there's an arena, if you will. In the world. The idea there of world is cosmos, meaning the place where human beings and animals live. It is the system of practices and standards associated with a, a society. The sum total of everything here and now. The orderly universe. The system of human experience in its many aspects. The world. And so based upon that, you'll hear me talk as we look at this passage of Scripture about life as we know it. We are humans, we live with human experience, we don't have the transcendent view of God about all that's going on, and so we live every day, and unfortunately, we live every day as though this is all there is. Every now and again, we get caught to remember, oh, wait a minute, God is good, He's always good, God is always doing good, but every day it's easy for us to fall into the mundane and live life as we know it. This passage of Scripture is to call our attention above that, if you will. So what we find in the arena of life is two acting agents who have very different designs for how the affairs of life should impact you. One of them has the desire to destroy you, and the other has the desire to develop you. And I would say the difference is our awareness. That as I look at life, I have to look at it and its affairs with a recognition. And thus, I want us to see today the recognition that is necessary for sanctification in everyday life. So let's notice a couple of truths. First of all, recognize that you have an adversary. Recognize that you have an, adver an adversary. And as you do that, I want you to see that there's a recognition. 
I'm not going to spend time this morning doing a systematic theological study of, of Satan or of, of demonology, angelology. I really want us to just look at this text this morning and see what it is Peter is saying specifically about our adversary in this passage because it's that understanding that applies to how we live our everyday lives. And so notice the recognition. Know who he is. What does Peter say about our adversary? First of all, Peter identifies his character. There are two common problems, I think, when believers talk about Satan. The first is that we make more of him than he deserves. The second is that we make less of him than we should. So it's not that we need to blame everything on him or say that Satan made me do it, but there is a recognition that I have an adversary who is actively working in the world every day. Notice that he is identified as our adversary here, his character, is that he is identified by his animosity. Your adversary. The word there is antagonist. An opponent, an adversary. One whose primary purpose is to come against. One whose purpose is not productive but destructive. The intention is to disable. He is bent against us as an opponent. Friends, I wish I could tell you that you have the privilege of living your spiritual life, your life for God every day in a vacuum and that it's all up to you. But that just isn't the case. You have someone who is literally hell-bent on standing against everything that God wants to do in your life. He's an antagonist. He's against us. Then notice, secondly, he is an accuser. This term, the devil, diabolos, is an interesting word. It means slanderous or falsely accusing. Our enemy is not merely desiring to frustrate us or to make us miserable. He wants to devour us and devastate our lives, and he does it by actively accusing. You know the story of Job? You know, in the story of Job, it's interesting. If you go back and read chapter 1 and chapter 2 and the interactions that happen through the two tests that take place there... (laughs) Actually, Satan comes before God and he accuses God, doesn't he? He's been going to and fro throughout the whole earth and I think the description of the activity there is that what he was doing in Job's life, that's what he was looking to do. He's trying men. So God says, hey, well, have you considered my servant Job? It was God that brought up Job's name. And what does Satan do? He says, oh, he only serves you because you bless him and you give this to him and you protect him and you take care of him. God, you don't have any integrity. He doesn't actually serve you because he serves you. He serves you because what you do for him. He's an accuser. Friends, I think we are facing some of what we're facing in our culture because in many ways he's winning. He's accusing wives to husbands and husbands to wives. He's accusing children to parents and parents to children. Every difference of opinion somehow is a thing that isolates us further. And if we're not careful, he would love to do it right inside the church. He will antagonize you, and then he'll have someone share their opinion with you that you don't like, and in your heart he accuses them to you. So he's identified by his antagonism, but then notice he's identified by his activity. As I studied this passage of Scripture, it really was the first that it jumped out at me that there's a specific description of our adversary in this passage of Scripture. 
I always thought, he's a lion, and he's looking to devour. But there's actually more to it than that here. He is a roaring lion. Why would Peter describe him as a roaring lion? Well, my curious mind began to think about, well, what, what is it about a lion's roar? Why, why do lions roar? You ever thought about that? My mind naturally said, well, I've seen Simba, right? So he roars because he's king of the world. That's, well, no, that's not why lions roar. I know after he conquers his foe, he wants to announce to everybody that, that he's just had this great victory. So he roars and tells everybody he's had this great victory. Well, no, that's actually not why he roars. I was actually really interested to find that mostly it's old lions that roar. Now they all roar. But it's old lions that roar. Have you ever watched any of these shows on TV? And I saw another one recently about lions. Isn't it always interesting that it seems like this big old lion who's the chief stays there while everybody else goes and hunts, and then after they get the kill, they all flee and he gets first choice. That's just really interesting to me. Well, I found out that there's actually things that happen within the pride and one of the reasons that lions roar, old lions roar, is they actually use their roar to divide or to direct the herd that's being hunted. So a lion will go and roar out in directions that makes the herd not go that direction. Thus, they're directing traffic, if you will. And they're doing so by causing terror. A roaring lion is a terrorist. That's what the roar is about. I was in Zambia teaching a few years ago and got to go out to dinner with a couple. And the lady in that couple um, had grown up out in the bush in Zambia. And so it was fascinating to me. I'm in Zambia thinking I'm in the bush. And she talked about growing up in the bush from where we were. So anyway, um, she said that, that uh, her people group lived in a particular piece of land along a curve in a river. I thought it was fascinating that she described that she was the only one in her village that didn't know how to swim. And I thought, well, why don't you know how to swim? You lived on a river. And she said, well, my job was to sit on the riverbank and watch for crocodiles while everybody else swam. And I thought, I would be the second one in your village that didn't know how to swim. <laughs> but she described the time of year when the lions would come. They lived in a, in a hut and her father said that he, you know, that, that he would get them ready because there was a time of year that the lions would come. And she described hearing the lions away in the distance and eventually dad saying, okay, today's the day. And they'd take everything they had uh, in their house and they would move it all against the one door into the house. And she described sitting inside the house at night while the lions would walk around the outside of their house and roar. And she said, you literally could feel the roaring inside you. And by looking at her eyes while she was describing that, it bred terror in me. So how loud is a lion's roar? Well, 114 decibels, and that probably helped you as much as it helped me. About 25 times louder than your gas-powered lawnmower. It can be heard five miles away. So the description here of a roaring lion is used particularly to communicate the idea of instilling fear or causing panic and confusion. 
We live in a culture that is gripped by panic and being overcome by confusion that more and more and more is sourced in fear. I think God's people have been gripped by that same sense of fear. There's a tension, you see, between fear and faith. Usually, we respond to the circumstances of life with one or the other, but rarely both. There's a a tension between terror and trust. It's interesting that we're living in a world where fear sells. Just think about it for a moment. How much good news do you hear on the news? Fear sells. I'm fascinated by the Weather Channel. I used to live in Wilmington, North Carolina, where tropical storms and hurricanes were a regular thing. And all of a sudden, on cable news, the Weather Channel would go to the top of the heap with regard to number of people watching it. And it was amazing. They could manage to talk about one hurricane that stayed offshore for three weeks, just in case it might come back or something like that. Fear sells. And we're easily gripped by it. You see, when the motivation for what we are doing or how we are responding is fear, it impacts us in unique ways. You know what the primary response when fear grips a heart is? Anger. Think about it for a moment. A young mom walks out of her house, her toddler's in the front yard, and the toddler's about to step into the street. How does that young mother respond? Oh, sweetie, could you come back? No, typically it's, don't step in the road. There's a fear that grips our heart. And that fear often comes out in a heightened state of emotion. And our adversary is a terrorist who is breeding that fear in so many. And as a result, we are living in an angry culture. My question to you this morning is, are you listening to him? I challenge us as believers to think back through our conversations. Think about the things that we talk about. How are our responses politically? How are our responses at home since relationships all got changed and COVID COVID threw us all together? How are our responses at church over things that we have differing opinions on? And I would tell you all too often the evidence says that our our terrorist adversary is winning because we're listening to him. And we're not sure what life is going to look like, but we know it doesn't look like what we thought it would. And because of that, there is fear. And that fear is gripping our hearts and it's coming out of us as a response of anger. Because of that, he is described as one who is devouring. Devouring. Literally, to tear to shreds. Our responses are all taken and put, if you will, on steroids. Everything is blown up. We feel so separated and so polarized, and we don't know how to fix it. And he is literally tearing us apart. So what is the response? Notice what Peter says. He says, 
some key things. One, be awake. The word there is to be well-balanced or self-controlled, to be sober-minded or composed in mind, to curb the controlling influence of inordinate emotions or desires, work toward reasonableness, conceived of as sobering up from something that influences us, influences us like alcohol. In other words, he says, it is time for you to actually get your mind rebalanced with what is true. We sang this morning and had a theme in a service that is part of this truth. How in the world can I get to a place where I become reasonable again over the affairs of life and I'm not just driven again to extremes every time I hear the next news report about what somebody did or didn't do or did they hide documents or did they not hide documents and why did they do that and who stole the election anyway? And I find myself in a furor again as though that is what actually is what matters in life. And what really matters in life is this, as we sang this morning, He is always good, and He is only good, and He will hold me fast. It's time to sober up again, folks. And I say that to you not while you sit in a pew at church. I say that to you while you sit at home and you watch Fox News. That whatever it is you hear, you realize this is life as I know it. This is the everyday life I'm living in. But my God is always good. And He never makes a mistake. And He is working all things together for good to them that love Him and to those who are the called according to His purpose. That He is building His church as Jesus promised. And He is spreading His gospel. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's time for us to become sober-minded. Be awake. Secondly, be alert. To be on one's guard, to be cautious or wary about, to be alert. And you know what that is? It's a next step, right? Okay, so wait, 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 wait. I just heard that. I'm beginning to react the wrong way. Oh, okay, wait a minute. I got to get sober-minded. But now, I ought not to live in that yo-yo of life. I ought to be putting on the lenses of Scripture so that the next time I'm getting information, I actually am preparing my heart for it. That in a sense, I am treasuring up God's Word in my heart so that I might not sin against God. That I am building in my heart, if you will, a staple of truth. That when life throws these circumstances at me, when I hear these news reports, or somebody reacts in a way that is polarizing to me, rather than me getting angry, my response is becoming more of a Scripture-filled response. I'm preparing my heart, if you will. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy law. And then thirdly, I, I love this. Because sometimes I think we tend not to think this way. But notice he says, not just be awake, not just be alert, but thirdly, be aggressive. Whom resist steadfast in your faith? You notice we sang that this morning? Chris Anderson's hymn. God's gracious remedy for His people to live life effectively in the everyday life as we know its circumstances is that we live with a mindset to resist Him. 
We are to oppose him. We are to stand against our adversary. And how do we accomplish this? Are we to pit our own strength against his? Never. We effectively stand against him by being, notice, steadfast in the faith. We're to arm ourselves with faith in the faith. We're to continue trusting in the great truths of God's word. 1 John 3, 8, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that He might destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2, 15, Having disarmed principalities and powers, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, the cross. And so, friends, we are to be aggressive with the truth, knowing that it is the truth that makes us free. I think this is two directions. I think we should be preaching the truth inwardly every day. How often do you preach the truth to yourself? And I think then we ought to be preaching the truth outwardly every day. This is an aggressive stance against the attacks of the adversary. Let me ask you, how often do you affirm the truth in those you know and love? It's no accident that we're living in a culture that wants to make affirmation everything. Now, I think it's false affirmation. Whatever I tell you, your ethical response is you have to affirm me. You can't disagree with me. By the way, that is totally contrary to Scripture. But I do think there is truth there, right? I think there's an aggressive activity that goes about rightly affirming the truth in the lives of others. When was the last time that you praised your wife when she took a stand in communicating truth to your children? And you walked away from that conversation and you got with your wife and you said, you know what, sweetheart, I just want to thank you for living out and speaking the truth to our children. You know, there's something to that. When was the last time in seeing a believer do right, you took occasion to write them a note or step by them by their side and say, hey, I just want you to know I noticed. And God used you to impact my life today because you did what was right. You see, friends, this is aggressive activity that because we live our lives every day, we feel a little odd doing that. But this is the community of faith. How are we to edify one another, to love one another? How are we to speak the truth to one another? All the one another's of a New Testament community are found in aggressively communicating God's truth in an affirming way. And if we get busy doing that, you know what? The sa Satan would have a very hard time accusing our brethren to us. So we need to recognize that we have an adversary, but then secondly, we need to recognize our life circumstances. The idea here to know, this is why I use the word recognize, that he uses here is to be aware of a fact or something that is specific. It is the process of gaining knowledge that leads to understanding. And so we need to understand our life circumstances. First of all, we need to understand what they are. Notice the word that he uses here, afflictions that are being experienced. It's a state of great suffering and distress due to adversity. And the particular word that Peter uses here actually directs that work inwardly rather than outwardly. It's the word pathema where we get the, the, the idea of feeling. And so it's inward distress. We are living in circumstances that are distressing. I'm not making light of that this morning. These are distressing times. 
what I want you to see is Peter wrote this a long time ago. Life in this world, whatever expressions the culture may take for a believer whose home is heaven, is always distressing. A fallen world is no friend to grace. But what he wants us to notice is this. He uses this word, that, uh, being experienced in the ESV. The Greek word means to be or become successfully completed or put into effect. To finish something begun. To bring to a purposed end. To bring about a result according to a plan or objective. And what I want you to see is he describes that something is being completed. And where is it being completed? He uses the word for brotherhood. The Greek word there is actually the church across the world. Understand through a kinship relationship as brothers or sisters. And what he is saying is this. Yes, your circumstances are distressing, but we must understand why they are what they are. Our God is at work in the everyday circumstances of life to accomplish eternal purposes in His children. God is at work in the arena of life, the same circumstances that we live in, that Satan wants to use to devour and destroy. God is at work and He has a purpose and that purpose is to make His children more like His Son. God is at work in the difficulties of your life to hone you and to perfect you and to purify you and to make you like Jesus. And it changes the way we live every day. It changes the everyday just circumstances of life. Why doesn't anything ever work out for me? Because the things that aren't working out in the temporal are being worked out in the eternal to accomplish God's good purposes in your life. These same circumstances, these same difficulties, these same distresses, COVID and losing a job and having to move home or all the troubles that come with it or political upheavals and revolutions or wars in Eastern Europe, all of this isn't lost on our God. All of this isn't Satan winning and God's world somehow spinning out of control. God is at work in all the circumstances of life to sovereignly bring about His good purposes and accomplish the working of salvation in the lives of His children. This is why they are what they are. So as I close this morning, I want us to go then to the second actor in these circumstances. And I want us to recognize our God. This is where He ends. Peter finishes with a doxology. It actually harkens back to the beginning of the passage. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. And then this familiar phrase, casting all your care upon Him for He careth for you. And I want us to see the things He points out about our God that will enable us to live differently in a world that is distressed. First of all, notice His immense power. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Friends, in the everyday circumstances of life, no matter what transpires, are you living in a relationship with God that allows you to look up above the fray and say, my God can. 
Whenever we forget that, it's time to go back and read our Bibles, isn't it? I've been in my Bible reading, making my way from the beginning of Genesis. I read the New Testament first and then went back to the Old Testament. And so I've been reading through those fascinating stories of the Judges and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And you know what? It just makes my heart reverberate with the truths. My God can. My God can deliver. My God can open a sea. My God can break down walls. My God can. So when you look at your life and you look at the distress that you are facing, remember His immense power and humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God. What is the greatest insulation for the heart of the child of God against the provocation of our adversary? It is to remember that greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. And you can't make sense of what the news is telling you. Just remember, I don't have to. My God can But then secondly, see His immeasurable grace. His immeasurable grace. That He may exalt you in due time. Divine enabling. That God's plan is not for us to be downtrodden and destroyed. That His plan is about a much greater exaltation. Realizing that every time there has to be a death before a resurrection... But think about our great Savior, right? Think about the description of Paul in Philippians 2 about the mindset that he had and what happened to him when he was found in fashion as a man. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And Paul goes on to say, wherefore? God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. You see, God is at work and in His time and in His way, He is accomplishing His perfect will in the lives of His children. And He will dispense grace, divine enabling to do a transforming work in our lives. You see, friends, our loving God doesn't just know what you need. Our loving God knows why you need it. And He's more interested in ministering to your why than your what. God doesn't just hand out what I need. God uses the needs of my life because He understands the need that I really have and He's changing me. See, a heartfelt cry to God doesn't just say, oh God, relieve me of these circumstances. It actually prays, oh God, make me more like Your Son. This is His immeasurable grace. But then notice thirdly, His intimate care. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. He knows what you are facing. This is not a God who's distant and aloof. He's a God who is not far from every one of us. God sees and knows the circumstances. God sees and understands that inward terror of the heart. And he says to you, child, don't just bring that thing and hand it off to me and say, now God, you're going to have to deal with that. That's not what this verse is saying. It actually is a heart that in the midst of the circumstances of life recognizes God's ability and recognizes God's grace and says, God, I will abandon myself to you. You are good and I will trust you. 
Sometimes we tie the deliverance of God to a specific request. And then we're left somewhat dismayed whenever God didn't take away my cancer. Or God didn't fix my problem. Without realizing that God actually is maybe better than just to take away my immediate problem. That in trust I can say to Him, God, Paul prayed to you three times that you would take away his thorn in the flesh. And you said no, because you had better plans. And Paul then could say, I will all the more glory in my weakness, for your strength is made perfect in my weakness. This is a heart that says, God, I'm abandoning myself to you, trusting that you are good. Do you know hell's terrorist cannot shake your heart when you abandon yourself to a good God? This is what causes me to live with a divine perspective on my life as I know it. God, this isn't easy. God, this is hard. God, people are suffering. God, I have to admit right now, I'm not sure. And it's welling up in fear in me. But you know what? I know you're good. I know you're able. And in your grace, I know in your time you will do that which is best. Notice as Paul finishes, he gives us a beautiful portrait of sanctification. If you walk away with something to memorize out of this passage, it's a doxology at the end. Notice he speaks of the God of all grace. This is the person of sanctification. It's not just a process. God didn't throw a switch. God is the one personally involved in our lives. He's the God of all grace who has called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. This is the promise of sanctification. He is at work in our lives because there's an ultimate purpose. He has called us unto His eternal glory by His Son. God is working out a promise. Then notice, after that you've suffered a little while, this is the process of sanctification. It's actually, this little while is all of life. He is working in the circumstances of life as we know it to accomplish an eternal purpose. Make you perfect. Establish, strengthen, settle you. This is the product of sanctification. And if you notice, it's a description that is exactly the opposite of the work that the roaring lion is trying to accomplish. He is trying to break us down. He is trying to dissettle us. He is trying to weaken us. But our God, through those same circumstances, is working a plan that makes us more like Jesus, bringing us to perfection. And in the process, it looks like establishing us, grounding us, strengthening us, and settling us, giving us peace. These are characteristics of what I think it is to be made mature or perfect. So as I close, we know what life is like, don't we? This is life as we know it. But I ask you this question. In the midst of your everyday circumstances of life, life as you know it, who are you listening to? It'd be easy to sit here this morning and say, oh, I'm listening to God. I'm listening to God. But I'm asking you this morning to examine the evidence of your heart. Look at your reactions. 
How much of your life do you spend filled with anxiety, fear? How often do you find yourself in your reactions being angry? Who are you listening to? And this morning, I think Peter, in this passage of Scripture, is calling us in the midst of the everyday circumstances of life to stop and to look at our God and to listen with a heart that longs to know Him and a life that wants to be what He is intending to accomplish in my life. I believe this is what it means to cast your care on Him with a heart that truly believes He cares for me. So I wonder this morning, in this arena of life filled with its toils and struggles and temptations and problems and hurts and pains and pandemics, Are you listening to the adversary? Or are you yielding to your God? And what does the evidence say? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are good. You are always good and you are always doing good. God, I pray this morning that you would teach us to listen. God, if there's one here this morning looking at their lives is struggling with fear and anger and it's manifest in their relationships. Oh God, I pray that they would do what this passage says, that they would humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. If there's one here this morning who is overwhelmed, God, I pray that they would listen to what this passage says when it says to cast your care and know that he cares for us. God, if there's one here this morning who sees all these circumstances in life but doesn't know you as Savior, oh God, today I pray that you would draw them to yourself, bring them to faith in Christ, and make them your child. Thank you, oh God, that you are at work in our lives. We pray that we would see that it's for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name.